We're going to start the Mount Olivet Prophecy now, and this is a difficult prophecy to understand in, in detail, and yet it's also very important to understand because it, it speaks to us directly of our last days. And so let's even more so start with, uh, with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we ask for understanding of your word. We pray that you'll quicken us from your word, that you will open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your, your law, and especially out of the words of your dear Son. Father, we believe and we hope that we are in that last generation, and we pray that we may be, that you will send him soon. And we pray, Father, for wisdom and the necessary strength to live in these last days for you. And Father, we're coming now to the words of your Son about our days, and we pray for a special insight into what he's really saying to us, and that we might rightly understand him, and especially be strengthened by you to live as he would have us live in these days. For his sake, amen. Well, Matthew 24, it's very difficult to uh, weigh up all the different ideas which are offered in interpretation of, of this prophecy. And I, I'd like to just start in this first session by having a look at, uh, at some of the options and suggesting what I think is a, a fairly new uh, approach compared to uh, the, the number of suggestions that are around. Some people say, no, no, this was all fulfilled in AD 70. Can't you see that? It's really obvious that so much of the prophecy clearly talks about the destruction of the temple. That was destroyed in AD 70. Jesus is there opposite the temple, and he says to the disciples, what you're seeing now uh, with your eyes, this is going to be destroyed, not one stone left upon another, and so forth. And he does talk very clearly as if that generation is going to see all this. I mean, he, he says at the end of the prophecy, after he's given the uh, parable of the fig tree, this generation will not pass away till all this has been fulfilled. And we tend to, I think, misread that as meaning the generation that sees the, the fig tree blossoming will not pass away. But that's not what it says. It, it, that seems to be a kind of a coda that he, he adds at the end of what he has to say in all the records in in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that uh, this is going to, to happen in this generation. And there's a number of other things that, that he says that uh, really are relevant only to that generation. And yet, in no way did Jesus actually come in AD 70 and establish his kingdom. You know, we did not see him coming with the clouds of heaven in power and great glory and with the angels with him, etc. That didn't happen. And yet, uh, it would appear that a number of the signs that he gives were fulfilled, especially if you read Josephus's account of the, the situation in the Jewish war in the, the lead-up to AD 70. It would seem that false messiahs and so forth, uh, earthquakes, famines, were all there in the lead-up to AD 70. So you think, well, surely this then came true, did it not? And yet there's this big problem that there are a number of things that are said here that clearly didn't. I mean, the gospel of the kingdom in verse 14 did not go for a witness to all nations. Uh, it, it simply didn't. It may have, it, well, it did go in limited sense uh, into, the, into the Jewish world, even into the Roman world, but it did not go to all nations. And even though Paul in Colossians speaks as if uh, that verse had had uh, some level of fulfillment. Uh, that doesn't mean when you look at the text here that the ultimate fulfillment was achieved. It clearly wasn't. 
And then you have the whole thing of the fig tree, that there's got to be spiritual fruit, fruit on the fig tree. Uh, that's clearly in the context of the usage of the fig tree in the Lord's teaching and experience, and in the wider Old Testament, that's clearly what it means. There must be spiritual fruit in Israel. Well, that didn't really happen. Uh, instead of the gospel going into all the world, the disciples took it to the Jews, and there was a huge load of controversy amongst the believers as to whether it should be taken to the Gentiles, to all nations, uh, and Paul was put on the outer, it seems, over all that, and the whole thing broke up in a load of, of argument, as, as I see it, and false doctrines came in, and so forth. <clears throat> so, what are we to say? Uh, did this whole prophecy fulfill in AD 70 or not? Well, it's clear that it didn't all fulfill. That parts of it apparently had an initial fulfillment, but, but the whole thing clearly didn't. And also, there are quotations and allusions to prophecies in Zechariah and Daniel, which are clearly about the last days, about the time just before the coming of Christ. And the, the time of trouble such as never was, which is a pretty well a quotation from Daniel 12, verse 1, about the time of trouble for Israel, such as never was. This terrible time coming upon them, um, if it's a time of trouble such that never was, you can't really say that AD 70 was worse than even the Holocaust uh, of the Second World War uh, and the 1930s in, in, in Europe and in Germany in particular. So, no, th this has got to speak about the last days. And yet, you keep on uh, getting this impression that Jesus is speaking to the disciples about what they were going to see, what was going to happen in their lifetimes. Well, there's been various theories uh, put forward. One is that there's a break in fulfillment in the Olivet Prophecy, that uh, certain verses apply to AD 70 and then there's a break. And that has been argued particularly from Luke 21, but here in Matthew 24, reading the chapter right through, you, you do not get that impression that there is any break in fulfillment. The whole thing reads uh, as one uh, presentation. So what are we to make of this? Well, my suggestion is this, that if you look at the nature of Bible prophecy, uh, it's not all set in stone, whereby God uh, predicts a timeline of events, and if you're savvy enough and smart enough, you can start to see that timeline of events fulfilling, and then you say, yes, and now this has happened, and then that's going to happen, and then that's going to happen, and then the day of the Lord will come. That is never how Bible prophecy has been used. The Lord Jesus said himself that he told people uh, what was going to happen uh, ahead of time so that when it happened, then they would know. Then they would understand. In other words, the understanding of the prophecy is at the time of fulfillment and not ahead of time. And I think that's because God is, to some degree, open in his way of working. There's all sorts of possible futures that he sees. And he may say things which are apparently predictions, which are, even though the, the, uh, sort of the conditions are not mentioned, he's saying this is what could happen. For example, in 40 days Nineveh shall be destroyed. Now there was no condition mentioned. But they repented, and in 40 days Nineveh was not destroyed. And yet reading it, just taking that verse in isolation, in 40 days Nineveh shall be destroyed, you could, if you're a cynic, say, ah yes, so the prophecy wasn't fulfilled. 
Well, no, it wasn't fulfilled. But that is not because God is somehow not capable or because God messed up. That is because God is open to human behavior. And what you see in his way of operating with prophecy is what you see actually in your own life and what you see in the lives of other people. That there are all kinds of possible futures, possible destinies that open up in front of us. And if you go that way, okay, so then another set of possibilities opens, and if you do that, then another set of possibilities opens. And it does seem to me that God is almost playing chess with us. He's going to win ultimately, but he, he sees the various moves we can make, and he knows all these possible futures. And that is why I think it must be very tragic to be God, because you see so much wastage of potential. Now, to give another example of a conditional prophecy, you look at all that uh, stuff at the end of Ezekiel there about a temple. Well, <clears throat> quite clearly, this was more command than prediction. It's called in Ezekiel 43, the law of the house. This is command rather than prediction, I would say. This is what could have happened when they returned from exile. They could have built that temple. They could have been a messianic kingdom, it seems. But they didn't. And that's why when they built a far smaller uh, structure, some people cried and some people shouted for joy. And I think the ones who cried were those who perceived that this is not Ezekiel's temple. And looking at it that way, you get around the whole problem of there being sacrifice in the age to come, which would seem to clearly contradict the teaching of Hebrews that the Lord Jesus was the one sacrifice for all time that ends the need for all time of any, any other sacrifice. You've got the whole thing about mortal priests, that they're not to uh, wear certain clothes that make them sweat. They are not to marry divorcees, so there's going to be divorcees in this, uh, in this kingdom, just that if you're a priest you're not supposed to marry one. Uh, it's all very human. It's not speaking surely of the kingdom of God. It's talking about a, a human situation that could have happened here on earth. I'll give you another one, Samson. He shall be a Nazarite from the day of his uh, birth to the day of his death. Well, yes, he shall be. But actually he wasn't because he had his hair cut. Um, and he departed from, from God for a period. <clears throat> so that didn't happen, did it? And so it also was, in my opinion, well, there's a lot of different theories about this, when God says, in the day that you eat that fruit, you shall surely die. Dying, you shall die. It's not talking about a process. It's talking about you really will. It's an obvious Hebraism that simply means this shall really happen. If you eat the fruit, in that day you shall die. They ate the fruit, and in that day they did not die because of God's grace, because he thought up another plan as it were, or revealed, shall I say, another plan to them. And so, when you come to the Olivet Prophecy and the predictions of um, uh, the Lord's coming in AD 70, and the way that he speaks as if this shall happen uh, before your eyes, this generation, and it didn't, <clears throat> that is not because he got it wrong. I would suggest that it's because the preconditions that were required, some of which are touched on in the Olivet Prophecy, were not fulfilled. And so there was a delay of that fulfillment until, we hope, our last days. And the two, uh, 
most obvious preconditions that were not fulfilled was the gospel going to all the world, to all nations. And as I say, whatever uh, limited fulfillment that had in the first century, it could not ever have fulfilled the requirements of the text there. And that text is expanded upon, as the whole Olivet Prophecy is in the book of Revelation, where we read of people having heard the gospel and having been redeemed from every nation, every ethnos, every ethnic group, every language group of the whole world. Well, that cannot, by any imagination, be twisted to mean uh, something that happened in the first century. It simply didn't. And therefore, that was not fulfilled. Likewise, the fruit on the fig tree, spiritual fruit upon the tree of Israel, this did not happen. Israel did not repent. And I would say that those two things, the taking of the gospel to the whole planet and the repentance of Israel, that these are the preconditions required for the second coming. And that is why there is no calendar date for the second coming. That's why you can never predict it, because there is no date. Because it's not that God has given a date, he has given preconditions. And when they are fulfilled, then the Lord shall come. So then, what appears to be a primary fulfillment of the prophecy in AD 70, I, I would uh, argue slightly differently. And I would explain the similarities uh, between the Olivet Prophecy in AD 70 in terms of this was all going to be fulfilled and God from his side did what depended upon him, for example, earthquakes, uh, famines and so forth, but man did not do what depended upon him. And so the whole thing was delayed. And the similarities on a few points uh, that connect with the Olivet Prophecy and what happened in the, in the first century, I, I would explain in terms of God having set up the potential for fulfillment then. But it did not happen. It did not happen. And therefore it has been delayed. Now, that does not mean it shall not come true. But it has been rescheduled, and I would say reinterpreted, and that is why not every uh, literal detail may have to come true. It may come true in essence. For example, um, <clears throat> the whole thing about he that is on the housetop, don't come down into your house, that's an allusion to people running over housetops to escape from one housetop, you could jump to the other, or even their little little sort of ladders that went between them, uh, and he's saying, look, you do that. Don't go down into your house uh, to, to get stuff. You just go as quick as you can. Well, that was culturally limited to the sort of houses they had in, in the first century. Now, whether every detail like that has got to come true, I, I doubt. But the essence will. So, as I say, it's been rescheduled, the coming of Christ. The conditions remain the same. The preconditions have still got to be fulfilled. And the details uh, may be reinterpreted. Now, <clears throat> I think that's why, when you come to the Gospel of John, which clearly was written sometime after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you don't have an Olivet Prophecy, but you have the Upper Room Discourse. And in terms of structure, in terms of structure of the, the Gospels, the Upper Room Discourse in John is exactly parallel with the Olivet Prophecy. There's all the events that, uh, that go on, and uh, 
kind of leading up to the crucifixion, and then immediately prior to the Lord's arrest, he gives this great speech in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, opposite the temple, saying what's going to happen to the temple, the Olivet Prophecy. But in John, instead, you've got John 14 to 16, where the Lord is in the upper room uh, giving this discourse. And when you look at the Upper Room Discourse and the Olivet Prophecy, you see that they are absolutely connected. There's so many turns of phrase which are identical. And I'm just going to run through them with you. Uh, John 13, verse 1, He loved them unto the end. The end. Matthew 24, verse 6, Then shall the end come, the coming of Christ. Birth pains, Matthew 24, verse 8, all these things are the beginning of birth pains. Jesus uses that. John 16, a woman when she is in labor has anguish. In the world you shall have tribulation. This is exactly Matthew 24. These are the beginning of birth pains and then shall be great tribulation. So then, the uh, birth pains which uh, Jesus was talking about in John 16, were actually his sufferings uh, that were leading up to his resurrection, and he's saying, you are going to share them. But then Matthew 24 talks about that in terms of the, the last tribulation. Matthew 24, verse 9, you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. It's exactly the same words, John 15, verse 18 and 21. You shall be hated for my name's sake. And the Lord isn't saying there that that's going to just be in the, in the tribulation period. He's saying, if you're in me, that's going to happen in life generally. John 16, verse 2, you shall be cast out of the synagogues. Again, Jesus talks about the synagogues and the Olivet Prophecy. You shall be beaten in the synagogues, which was typically done before they cast you out, excommunicated you. He says, in the Olivet Prophecy, Matthew 24, 10, many shall be offended, shall stumble. John 16, verse 1, I'm telling you this so that you don't stumble, so that you shall not be offended. Endure to the end, he says, Matthew 24, verse 13. He that endures to the end shall be saved. And this is the Greek word hupomeno. And yet Jesus keeps on using the word meno throughout the Olivet, throughout the Upper Room Discourse, Translated, abide, remain, abide in me, and I will abide in you. But he says in Matthew 24, well, in the final tribulation, you've got to abide to the end. But he's in John 16, he's talking about that as if that goes on in life, throughout the believer's life. Men's hearts will fail them for fear, Luke 21, verse 26. But see that you are not troubled, Matthew 24, verse 6. It's exactly the same words, John 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. John 14, verse 27, Let not your heart be afraid. John 14, I will come again and receive you unto myself. He's not, I think, talking about his second coming. He's talking about his resurrection. They say to him, where are you going? And the answer was, I'm going to the cross. But he says, yeah, I'm going to the cross, but I will come again. Resurrection, and receive you unto myself gather you to myself. This is exactly what Matthew 24 says in terms of the second coming. I have told you, Matthew 24, 25, I have told you before it happens. Exactly the same, John 14, 29, I have told you before it comes to pass. 
talks in John 15 about the branch of the vine that must bear fruit. And that's absolutely the same language about the tender branch of the fig tree that must bear fruit in the last days. Love one another. John 15 verse 17, agape. Matthew 24 verse 12, the agape of many shall become cold. You should be hated of all nations, Jesus says, uh, the equivalent in the upper room. Marvel not if the world hates you. Marvel not when the world hates you. And he's saying that's an experience that's going to be throughout your lives in me. If they've persecuted me, they will persecute you, John 15, verse 20. Same word in Luke 21, verse 12. They shall persecute you. During the uh, tribulation, Matthew 24, 14, the gospel shall be preached as a witness unto all nations. But in John 15, 27, you shall bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. In other words, this, will, this witness will be a way of life for you. The Son of Man coming in glory. Matthew 24, verse 30. Well, Jesus says that the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, is going to be as good as his actual presence, and he shall glorify me. In the world you shall have tribulation, John 16, 33. This is exactly the same word used about the tribulation of the last days. Matthew 24, three times uses that, that term. So then, what I think was happening then is that, yes, it was potentially possible that Jesus could have come in the first century, quite soon after his ascension to heaven. But the preconditions were not fulfilled, and so he did not. And his coming was therefore rescheduled until later. And then John's Gospel was published a bit later than the others, in which he publicizes the fact that actually the Olivet Discourse was almost in two parts. There's the part you've got in Matthew, Mark, and Luke about uh, the, the signs of the temple and destruction of the temple, abomination that makes desolate and so forth. And then the second half was actually said in the upper room just to the disciples, where he seems to be saying, all those things that I've just told you, the essence, the essence of it is true right now. It's not just jam tomorrow. This is not just a tribulation that is going to come in the future. It's going on now. And that actually by my spirit, through the comforter, I am as good as still with you. I am with you uh, right now. And right now, I'm, as it were, coming to you in clouds of glory. I am being glorified now. And so I think it's very challenging that what he's saying is, yes, I gave you all those signs, and yes, you can see them fulfilled at some point, and yes, I will come. This is not to in any way downplay the reality of the second coming. But he's saying the essence of my coming is now. And that is a lesson that needs to be learnt, because so many people have spent their lives trying to work out uh, Bible prophecy, comparing it with contemporary events, and they come to the end of their lives, or have done this for many years, and come to the conclusion that, well, whatever, he's not coming, and they've, at the least not at the moment, and they lose their interest and their faith. Whereas, 
Whereas the essence is, uh, is, uh, is the point of the connection between the Olivet Prophecy and the Upper Room Discourse. The point is that that is neither here nor there. The wonder of the fact that he is in spirit and in essence with us now, that is enough. That is enough. And yes, he that shall come will come. But whether or not he comes in our lifetime is not the essence. Not only because we shall in any case be resurrected to meet him, but because he in essence is with us right now. And unfortunately I've noticed a, a connection between, an, a, apparently as far as I can see, uh, a, a total failure to, to feel this in, in some people, or their own admission that they don't feel Jesus present they don't think uh, God's Spirit is active in their lives, etc. And yet they're very eager to look for the second coming, the visible second coming of Jesus, and to try to match world events against the prophecies, the Olivet prophecy, etc. They're very zealous to do that. And yet they admit, it's not me judging them, it is their own admission, that they don't believe the Spirit of God is active and they would just put a red line through all the stuff about the Comforter and say, yeah, that was in the first century, Holy Spirit gifts, miraculous gifts, etc. And now we don't have that presence of the Lord in our lives now. Well, we do. It's not talking about miraculous gifts. I'd be the first to agree that miraculous gifts, as claimed by Pentecostals and the like, are just, you know, just nonsense. They, they don't have those gifts, and that's, that's the bottom line. That's the end of argument. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the presence of the Lord Jesus in our lives. Now, that is a totally different thing, whereby you know him as a friend, whereby you see him being glorified, as it were, in front of your own eyes, and when the promise of the Comforter, that it will be almost as good as if he is with you still. Like he says, I'm going away, but don't be sad, I'm coming to you in the Comforter. He's using the language of the second coming about his coming to us now in, in terms of the, the presence of the Comforter. And that means that, well, whether or not I get it wrong in my attempt to uh, sort of tally world events with Bible prophecy, that, that's neither here nor there. Whether I die before he comes, well, that is in that sense neither here nor there. The essence is that he is with me now, right now. And that, in any case, we shall be resurrected and we shall see him finally, visibly, and we shall live with him.